0: When the basis of belonging is conforming Mm. to a group, it's not belonging. That's a contingency, that's a, a criteria, and it's not acceptance.
1: That is dropping the mic moment.
0: What does that do? It stifles innovation, it stifles creativity, it keeps people at the margins, it leads to stagnation. I mean, my gosh. Each of us is unique. Why in the world? What we demand conformity
1: as a basis of inclusion. I disconnect from self. Mm-hmm. I lose access to my agency. Mm-hmm. I am actually sacrificing my authenticity to stay attached. That's right. Period.
0: In the t- context of workplaces, it begins day one. Yeah. Or even before day one. So someone knowing that they can can thrive is in part knowing that people cared enough about to look at them and say,
1: we're glad you're here. I mean, this is resonance. This is being able to be witnessed.
0: But what happens in a hyper-competitive environment when you are saying, okay, I've hired 10 of you and one of you can make it to the top. What, is, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> people are going to bind together. There's going to be mm-hmm. division. There's going to be fractions.
1: You know, you can motivate Teams through fear, Mm -hmm. and you can motivate teams through curiosity.
0: I am Adina Sterling, and to me, to belong means to be fully present, to feel free to take risks and learn and develop without fear of punishment or retribution, so to be fully present.
1: Adina Sterling. Rash Kamari. Welcome to the studio. It's great to be here. You are an associate professor of management at Columbia And you are an organizational theorist, I love this, and economic sociologist that investigates the causes and consequences of human relationships in organizations and markets. This just brings joy to my heart to read this Mm -hmm. because I have a feeling we're going to get into human relationships and really talk about how they connect to organizations. So I'm excited. Yes. Let's dig in. You talk about... Social networks, yes, just fascinating to me. Um, you you say a lot of the outcomes that individuals, groups, and organizations experience have to do with social networks they're part of. We get a lot of our resources from social networks. Let's just start there. Sure. What is a social network? Sure. Let's introduce the audience to this concept and let's yeah. start to talk about. Yeah, it's a great that. it's yeah. a great
0: place to start because yeah. when people think about social networks, they'll oftentimes think about. Facebook or Instagram or what's on social media. That is
1: actually where I went first. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's
0: where most everybody's uh, mind goes first. But sociologists have been studying social networks for decades and decades. And they're, in essence, the patterns of relationships that exist between people and groups and institutions and societies. And what we know is those patterns are very powerful. Mm -hmm affecting what people understand about each other, about the, their own group and groups that they're not a part of. They're awfully important to resources, as you mentioned, like advice and information and social support. They're awfully important for lifelong longevity So, to feel, and, and a sense of connection. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is the foundation of belonging. I would like to say the foundation of belonging. I would say that yeah. you know my my social psychologist friends would say you know there's also a kind of psychological component, so mm-hmm. it's, it can also be how people feel. But I think what sets up how people feel in terms of do I belong here or not is embedded in social relationships,
1: right? But the, the research shows that when I am connected. To others, when I have a support group, when I'm in community, I thrive, I flourish. Martin Seligman talks a lot about flourishing and 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 even learned optimism. Um, the, the physiological responses that I have as a human show up in really amazing neurochemical ways. They do,
0: they do, and they do from infancy
1: absolutely
0: we from just instancy. we we are we are hardwired for relationships and
1: they affect, now, now you're speaking my language <laughs> now, now you're speaking my language
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they 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 affect so much of who we are both within workplaces and outside of them and in my work and what sociologists often do and i'm um that's my area we think about because of the external impacts of social relationships. Yeah. So where do you live? What does that mean for your amount of psychological safety in totally. your day-to-day life? What does it mean for yeah. the opportunities for your children? What does it mean for the, the kinds of jobs that you're going to get, et cetera?
1: This is, this is amazing. How did you come to be fascinated by this and dive so deeply? Because what you do so brilliantly is that you connect it back to organizations. And we're gonna dive into organizations sure. while you're here.
0: Rajkumari, Kamari, honestly, I feel like for most academics, we can say, how do we come become interested in something? And it's a post hoc rationalization of
2: mm-hmm.
0: a <laughs> set of experiences we've had. I will say in my own in my own career prior to coming to academia. Mm. relationships really mattered where i worked i was an engineer at procter and gamble oh my and goodness i did not know that i had studied chemical engineering as an undergraduate wow. and my very first entree into the corporate world was when i was 18 i was an intern and someone at G who was an alum at the place that i was going to go mm. to school kindly opened up her home for six weeks so I could stay there. Here I was this teenager. I had wow. never been away that long. And we developed a friendship and that friendship set up a set of relationships. It, it, it was a springboard for a lot of relationships that I had ah. at, at P&G. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, everybody there was smart. I mean, I would, I was not from MIT or Stanford. I'm happy to, I would, I graduated from Ohio State. Mm. P&G would recruit people from the top universities around the world. But I had a lot of success at p and I think in part because I learned relationships mattered. It mattered if people trusted you. It mattered if once they left the room, they believed that you would do what was right for the business, that you cared, and those sorts of understandings, I think, come from human relationships. You can't, you can't get it from an algorithm. You can't get it from Sheen. So
1: that was some of it. I am so excited about this conversation. You say here referrals when mm-hmm. you talk about. Um, network-based inequality in organizations, you talk about referrals and you say, it's the way that many people land their jobs, Mm -hmm. yet, ah, and here we go again. Here we go again. Women and marginalized racial groups, or I would say racial groups in the global majority, Mm -hmm. are less likely to be referred to in organizations because they don't have as many relationships with men Mm And people who identify as white bo- within the white bodied community. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. We are now hundreds of studies in that have replicated this understanding of how important social networks are to creating access to opportunity, and yet how fragmented and segmented mm-hmm. our networks remain. And some of that is due to what social psychologists would say is a natural tendency for people to be drawn to people like themselves, mm-hmm. either kind of visually or in a more substantive way. But we also have incredibly fragmented networks because of our own histories, because of all because of historical policies, because of all of the
1: Generational generations, trauma. G- generational
0: trauma, segregation, redlining. I mean, our networks look the way they do and they lack, they lack diversity on lots of levels because mm. of the particular point at which we sit in this arc of history. And so, yes, um, if I'm a poor black kid from inner city, Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, and my dad was that kid at one point he knew almost no one um, who was white who was middle class who had graduated with an engineering degree and he had to go do all of those things without a lot of people in his network Mm
1: -hmm. to open doors this this is reminding me of back in 2014 2015 when i just started my company and I think it was two, three years in, and I started to gain, get, gain some traction, and you know was was getting was finding my way into conferences and, mm. and speaking about epigenetics and, and within organizations and, and such. And what was so interesting to me was I would go to the people who were the, the committee people who were putting the conference together, and I would say, "Where are the people of color? Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- where are they?" Mm-hmm. And I would consistently here. well, do you know anyone? Right. Because I don't know anyone. Correct. That's right. And the rage that would come forward in that is, do you not have access to LinkedIn? Sure. Right? Sure. And it was so confounding to me. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I understand that rage. I have at various times had a similar reaction, but truth be told, There is a lot of homophily in networks. And we can say, and in fact I teach my students that you know we ought not say that our networks are just a given. We need to be conscious of how we are building them. We need to be conscious of who we are reaching out to, giving advice to, who we're getting advice from. There are all we we could talk for hours about how to do that. And so it's it's not that they're a given, but I mean on the other side truth be told for the first I don't know at least 14 years of our lives we don't have a lot of agency when it comes to our networks our networks are our family and our kinship and our schools and as human beings there's a part of us that we tend towards social closure because Mm. we're not prompted to do more than that and so you can, or you could be, you know, in your thirties, forties, fifties, or older, and be at a conference and say, "Oh my gosh, it, attendees look a certain way, but I can't do anything about that because there's no one in my network, yes, that I can invite to the to the table,
1: yes, one one hundred percent. This this for me, and I, I'm feeling a little bit of um, shame actually admitting this uh, publicly." For me, what what's coming up is this is giving a whole new lens to allyship in the absolute dire need to uplift voices of color. You know, it's something that I focus on, and and ask my entire team. It's it's something I focus on every single day. Mm-hmm. I was just telling you the story, you know, mm-hmm. earlier uh, before we started recording, um, and. it it just accentuates it in a a different way for Mm -hmm. me listening to Mm -hmm. you. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And to uplift, and I know this is exactly what you mean, to uplift within the context of relationships. Of course. Right. In the context of closeness. Going back to my dad for a moment who um, graduated from high school, went on to get his PhD in chemical engineering. He was the only African American in 1990 to graduate with a PhD wow. in the United States in chemical engineering. What changed the trajectory of his life? Well, many things. I should mention my grandmother was an amazing woman, a single mom. This but is in your addition, mom. this is my father's mom. Yeah. But in addition, at a point in the 1960s where white flight was prevalent in inner city Kansas City, mm-hmm. there was a, mm. a chemistry teacher. Mm-hmm. a white German man
2: mm.
0: who decided not to leave my dad's high school and would tutor him in chemistry. He thought my dad had a knack for it. He did. Oh. He had whatever test he used to take to get <laughs> admitted into college, the subject test. He had something like a perfect score in chemistry. So he had a knack wow. for it. But he also had a teacher that decided not to leave. And so in the context of those of that relationship, he flourished. And I asked my dad recently, I mean, this was a recent conversation I had with him. I said, what do you, why, why do you think that was? And what he told me, Raj Kamari is that he is German had, had lived through the Holocaust. He was an Anglo-Saxon, but he, that had such an impact on him. He said, I'm not, I'm not leaving marginalized communities again. Never again. Changed the entire trajectory of my family.
1: I love that you say this. And before I say what you say, I'm going to say what I say, (laughs) which is I say um, the opposite of belonging is not whatever people think it is. It's exclusion. Mm -hmm. And you say the opposite of inclusion is not exclusion it's conformity. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, it's fascinating that we both reached, I think very similar (laughs) (laughs) conclusions and ways of thinking about this.
2: Yeah,
0: That's right. So when people
1: can only belong because they've conformed. Okay, wait, I'm gonna pause you. I want every single person in the audience listening and watching this episode to really listen to what Adina is about to say. Hmm. Please.
0: When the basis of
3: belonging is conforming mm. to a group, it's not belonging. That's a contingency. That's a that's a a criteria. And it's not acceptance.
1: I want everyone to take that in. That is dropping the mic moment. Yes, please. I don't want to get on my soapbox
2: too much. No, get on it, it get just, on it, get
3: on it. It just, it just, um,
0: and what, what, it, what, what does that do? It stifles innovation, it stifles creativity, it keeps people at the margins, it um, leads to stagnation. I mean, my gosh, each of us is unique. Why in the world? When well, I mean, we demand conformity as a basis of inclusion, it's just
1: keep keep going because <laughs> because this this is, not only does it stifle all the things you mentioned, I disconnect from self, mm-hmm. I lose access to my agency, mm-hmm. I am I am actually sacrificing my authenticity to stay attached. That's right. Period. Gabor Mate, who is the author of The Myth of Normal and a billion other books, probably, uh, who is an amazing human who I adore and have a tremendous amount of respect for, talks exactly about that. When attachment is at risk, mm-hmm. the first thing out the window is authenticity. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. There's this famous experiment. So the, the 40s and the 50s were a wonderful time. Uh, for social psychology, it really was kind of this mm. flourishing of mm-hmm. social psychology. In part, everybody was d- trying to understand what in the world had happened with the Holocaust. How could it have happened? And you know, yes. people, everybody knows, kind of the Milgram experiments and others. Yeah. Well, one that I will talk about. I talk about it less with my MBAs, but um, I taught at WashU. I taught undergraduates before joining Stanford. I they they were fascinated by this experiment. I would show them um, three lines Mm. on a screen and describe an experiment in which the researchers would bring nine people in a room and there would be one confederate. So the confederate was who was in on the experiment. And the researcher would say, well, you see line A here, which line matches it, B or C? Okay. And it was clear that B was the same length as A. Okay. But they would always place the Confederate right next to the researcher. And they would say, okay, we're going to go around. We just all want you to do this simple exercise. Well, when that very first person, the Confederate, in on the experiment would say, oh, that line A matches C, not B, what would disproportionately happen would be the next person would choose the wrong answer. And the next person would choose. So, this desire to conform is one pathway by which we can ignore what's right. I mean, it just goes so many. It goes in so many directions.
1: So, so many directions. So, what's coming up for me now is, um, you know, I, I'm bringing up Martin Seligman again, and, mm. and and but now I'm going down, you know, the whole path of of of, of learned helplessness. Mm-hmm.
0: And I should say that those were ASH experiments. So A S C H for your audience, the ASH uh, paradigm experiments. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yes,
1: yes. (laughs) Um, And it it, it triggered that for me because you said the word contingency. Mm -hmm. The main contingency in learned helplessness involves a plethora of different neurochemical pathways into Mm that. Mm -hmm. Um, But learned helplessness is repeatedly having the same experience that causes a level of stress that ultimately leads to the perceived belief that I can't do anything about it. That's right. That foundational element of learned helplessness is uncontrollability.
2: Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Which this is out
0: of my control. I have to. I have to conform. I've given up my agency.
1: I'm just going to burst into tears. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. You have, and and yeah. I will say
0: this: yeah. the way that w- we are talking about belongingness. This, I mean, it really is a. I'm enjoying this very much because this is a different way than I tend to think of, you know, again, so we think about mm. society and resources and movements and stratification, but this is, but mm. you're, you're tapping into something that I think is all very important. And um,
1: mm.
2: yeah, yeah.
1: You've created what you call a playbook, a best practices playbook mm-hmm. that helps people incrementally start, initiate, start to move toward working with understanding how to create greater cultures of belonging. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And I want to just give a little bit of credit where credits due not a little, a lot. Um, When I first started teaching my course at Stanford, my co-instructor, Fern Mandelbaum, and I created that. It was really her brainchild. She said, we need to give We need to put something in students' hands so that when they go away from the class, graduate from the graduate school of business, they can refer to it. And so, um, it's been—I mean, I have students, alumni, um, now, continually. If they've lost the link to the playbook, (laughs) they are emailing me for the link to the playbook. They want the playbook. How how do we get the playbook?
2: Can we
1: get the playbook? (laughs) Can I get the playbook? Well, uh, you have to take, I, t- I, t- I oh, say
0: this all the, you have, you have to, to be take a student the class. because you've got to take ah. the class. You've got to, but, um, okay. but it brings, nothing brings me more joy than students t- saying, oh my gosh, today Absolutely. when I walked into my office, there was a need for the playbook. Could, yes. And can you share the
1: playbook Beautiful. with me? Beautiful. So since, yeah. since all of us who are not going to be attending GSB <laughs> at Stanford, <Sure. laughs> and not have access to this particular class yeah. and playbook, yeah. what are some best practices that we could take away? Uh, oh, gosh.
0: It's, it's specifically about belonging. So we... I
1: mean, just whatever's coming coming yes. up for you, yeah.
0: Well, I think when it comes to belonging, keeping in mind that in the t- context of workplaces, it begins day one yeah. or even before day one. So someone knowing that they can can thrive is in part knowing that people cared enough about to cared about them enough to make sure they had a desk and a laptop. Yeah. That they didn't just continue on with the with the hustle and bustle of the day and putting out fires, but took some time to stop and look at them and say, mm-hmm. We're glad you're here. Mm. Um and <sighs> it's the going back to human connection, it's it's feeling as though, oh my gosh, this is a place I can connect from day one. Not that people from day one in workplaces are going to feel as though they've already made that connection, but that it could be a connection. I would sort of, you know, some, a, an example I'll sometimes give to students is most of my students and myself, we've been pr- privileged enough to travel the world. And yeah. we've gone to new places. And within about, an hour, a lot of us can figure out how comfortable we feel, of right? Course. And yeah. and do we feel as though we belong? And so from that first day, you want people to have that first reaction. And yeah. it really is about people feeling seen and celebrated. We're, we're glad that you're here. Literally saying that can make oh. a world of difference.
1: I mean, this is resonance. This is this is being able to be witnessed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Sarah Payton, who's the author of Your Resonant Self, speaks extensively on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we are seen, valued, appreciated, our engagement goes up exponentially. I want to I bring us to organizations. Mm-hmm. Before I go there, mm-hmm. um, Paul Zach has done some really interesting experiments. He's a neuroeconomist mm-hmm. around you know, high-trust teams and oxytocin, Mm.
2: Mm -hmm. right? And so
1: the higher the trust in teams, the greater the oxytocin is being secreted. Mm -hmm. He used inhalers or whatever he used to do his experiment. Mm -hmm. I think we should all deploy that organizationally. But (laughs) in any case, we're not going to... That's a very controversial statement right then and there. (laughs) What's also interesting about oxytocin, you know, it's the bonding chemical. It's Mm -hmm. what happens when we are in relationship, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not only oxytocin, but...
0: We feel good. Yeah. Yes.
1: Absolutely. Yes. We also secrete endogenous opioids, which yes. is another pathway to learn helplessness when that's diminished. Mm-hmm. And my guess there, and I would love to, you know, taffy that with you at some other conversation. <laughs> okay. You know, is you know how does conformity play a role in mm. that, and, and 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 kind of start to decrease those neurochemicals. I mean, clearly it's a cortisol response mm-hmm. or some kind of stress r- stress response.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But. What happens really interestingly is when I'm coming from this lens of you versus me kind of attitude mm-hmm. or, or perspective, mm-hmm. then this in-group, out-group dynamic starts to get formed. Yes. Even in organizations. Yes. Right? But what's so crazy about that is that there's oxytocin that then bonds the in-group away from the out-group. Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah, it's a big, it's a big disaster. <laughs> <laughs> just,
0: I mean, other words come to mind, but they, it, 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 it's we'll, we'll just stick with disaster. <laughs> I was going to get to cults and gangs, but I think we'll just pause. Here. <laughs> it was, it's disastrous. Why does this happen? Well, Rashikari, it's it's more likely to happen or not based on the culture and the leadership that's at the helm. So talk
3: about that. This is so important. Sure, sure. So this is an oversimplification,
0: but if for a moment we take a step back and think about organizations on two ends of an extreme, on one end, let's say we have a highly independent hyper-competitive organization. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, we have a, and, and that's a very hierarchical organization. And mm-hmm. then on the other end, we have a much more flat, collaborative one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just want to point out the smile that came with that last statement. <laughs> and not to <laughs> n- sure, for sure, for not sure. But we are trying specific. to create. But we are trying to create a new world of organizations, yes, right? We we right, want to create right. a more inclusive neurochemical. We do. We belonging. do.
0: And but what gets in the way of that is. Look, we're in. We are. We the re, the reality of the world is that resources, certain resources, are scarce. I don't know if I believe all resources are scarce. Um, human kindness is not. Well, it's in it, it's in scarce supply sometimes, but but we could have unending supplies of that. You know, James Ree, who we you.
2: I love James through Ree. me. Yes, He's talks so, about that a lot,
0: right? So we have kind yeah. of, uh, kindness is one of the two things that we have going for us <laughs> as, as society, right? So kindness kindness need not be in short supply, but sometimes it is. J-
1: I think. And ja- it, wait, do I want to say it? James James uses kindness. He says it, it's a glue. It's yes. the glue that keeps us connected. Yes,
0: yes. But what happens in a hyper competitive environment when you? are saying, okay, I've hired 10 of you, and one of you can make it to the top. What is, What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> people are going to bind together. There's going to be mm-hmm. division. There's going to be fractions. I mean, gosh, that is one model. But what about hiring 10 great people and saying, we want you all to, th- to, to thrive? We're going to have you in a culture where um, there's collaboration, there's a sense of... Um, you know, a shared identity mm-hmm. that we're in this together. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all, you know, all of this, but, mm-hmm. but oh, gosh, one of the, I'll never forget. And maybe because I'm new moving to New York, I can say this now, <laughs> but throughout my years at Stanford, I've, I've done various trainings and, um, taught executives and practitioners. And I'll never forget one woman raised her hand one day and I was talking about relationships and the importance of relationships Mm -hmm. and organizations. Mm -hmm. And she said, Adina, I want to believe what you're saying, but if all of this is so important, why do none of these Silicon Valley companies do any of this? (laughs) Oh, her point was, how can there be so much success and so much unkindness? And I'm not, and she, you know, she was exaggerating. Um, but, the, but the point well, but is. Well,
1: can we talk about that actually? Because the, sure. the research shows that, you know, you can motivate teams through fear. Mm-hmm. And you can motivate teams through curiosity, which mm-hmm. ultimately leads to psychological safety done mm-hmm. well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Both are highly profitable. Mm-hmm.
0: They are. Both are highly profitable. You know, we have this we have this human tendency. And this is some of the toughest. I don't know what to do about this, Raj Kumari. You know, Mm you have I part of the reason I have my equity by design lab is that I'm focused on solving problems of inequality.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. This aspect of our human psyche, I don't have a I don't have a solution to. It's it's the following we are so driven by social comparisons. We're not just satisfied with what we have, we value it more when it's more than someone else. This is the fa- this, these are all those famous studies, again, the heyday of social psychology in the 1940s and 50, 50s. And so Fessinger did some of these studies where he showed, just hypothetically, the numbers were smaller back then when he was doing these studies. But if someone has $1,000 and their neighbor has two thousand dollars. they're um more depressed than if they both had five hundred. I mean, it's just it's the comparison oh. And so you throw people into organizations and you don't have kindness, which is the glue. You don't have the right norms. You don't have leadership that's persistently seeking out how to create cultures and constantly renew cultures of collaboration and belonging left on their own Mm -hmm. human beings are, we're going to oftentimes devolve to our worst selves. We're going to social compare. We're going to divide. We're going to say, okay, let me hoard these
1: resources from these other groups.
0: We do it over
1: and over and over. Yes. And don't we do that because we live in systems of, Hierarchy. Yes. And therefore, being subsumed within these systems, we are conditioned to conform in order to belong. So, Ian McGilchrist is the author of uh, The Matter with Things and Master and the Emissary, and his mm-hmm. emissary. Mm-hmm. And so, he does a he, he, the, the Matter with Things is a 1500 page tome mm. where he read almost, I think, 7,000 peer reviews around neuroscience and just really understanding the hemispheres. Mm. And he talks at length about how the left hemisphere is the functional instrumental aspects of who we are. And the right hemisphere um, is the relational aspects of who we are. Mm -hmm. When I talk about the hemispheres in my Understanding Humans at Work course, I talk about how the left hemisphere Excels at comparing: Yes. Evaluating.: Yes. and measuring. And mm-hmm. I talk about how the right hemisphere is all about needs, feelings and accessing the somatic experience of our body. So how mm-hmm. we know we're tired, how we know we're hungry how we know we're pissed off, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're hot because it's 80 billion degrees in the studio <laughs> yeah. today and I'm wearing a blazer <laughs> <laughs> because I have to keep my the fashion going. The blazer looks great, though, <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet of you. <laughs> um, we connect. We have that interoception. We have that self-awareness. We mm-hmm. have that ability to self-attune. I think the answer is really easy, and I say this trying to not be flippant as I say it, which is... That we find ourselves prioritizing right hemisphere engagement in left hemisphere engagement. As organizations, oh. we do prioritize left hemisphere. Oh, okay. As as a society, we do prioritize left hemisphere. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. I you know, growing up in an Indian, culturally Indian from India ba- ba- family background, do 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 do. Right. Execute. Achieve. You know, that's it. That's all we care Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. It's awfully empty. Although prevalent. So just because we're doing it this way doesn't make it right. No.
0: I will say that sociologists are some of the most skeptical (laughs) scientists.
1: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Bring on that skepticism. Let's go. Let's go.
0: In some ways, Mm -hmm. if it were... Easy, it would be better. I mean, I, I have days where I think maybe the all, all of the left brain stuff will just be replaced by machines and we can have I hope that not. will that will you know, maybe we that will crowd out, we'll kind of remove aspects of who we are and we'll delegate those to machines and then we can focus on relationships and flourishing
1: flourishing and belongingness. inclusion happens in the left hemisphere because for me, inclusion is about creating safety for others. Mm -hmm. And that belonging actually happens in the right hemisphere because for me, epigenetically, that's the lens I view the entire world, every single nanosecond of every day, Mm -hmm. um, that, from a neuroception state, neuroception is a term coined by Stephen Porges, who wrote the book Polyvagal Theory. And it is the system that we have in our nervous system that is constantly scanning for safety, danger, and life threatening experiences. Mm-hmm. That's in the right.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: not neuroception, but belonging, our sense of interconnectedness, our sense of knowing that we have community. That's a right hemisphere experience. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. we can start to rewire coming from the right more dominantly mm-hmm. than prioritize coming from the left, mm-hmm. and I'm not making this a binary experience sure. w- whatsoever because, you know, there's so much, th- we're not going to have a sure. neuroscience class today.
3: Sure.
1: <laughs> right? Yes. Thank you. I, I don't know if I'd pass. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, neither would I. So <laughs> I just memorize facts and that's it. Um. I want to take us back to something that you say here. You're one of the authors of an Uh article that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Mm -hmm. um, a peer-reviewed journal Mm -hmm. called The Confidence Gap Predicts the Gender Pay Among STEM Graduates.
0: Yeah, isn't that depressing?
1: More than you can possibly imagine mm-hmm. on this side of mm-hmm. the mic. It can talk about that, but also, you, you say there you essentially write that cultural beliefs about the appropriateness of men versus women in these types of roles, mm-hmm. <sighs> maybe contributing to the pay gawk. It Can Talk about um, about that, but talk about meritocracy and tr- see, connect that for me. <sighs> we
0: have. And Western society is a strong belief in in merit that yeah. and not. So I should be careful here.
1: Yeah,
0: I think almost anybody that you poll, if you asked them, do you think that people should be treated fairly based on how mm-hmm. they perform? Mm-hmm. They would mm-hmm. say, of course, mm-hmm. right. And so, right. um, the myth of merit, which is research that that describes, um. The following that the more an organization believes it's a meritocracy, the less
1: it tends to be. Let's, oh, wow. Okay.
0: So, um,
1: and, and what is it instead?
0: <laughs> it tends to be more fair and un, un, unequal.
1: Oh, um, more unfair and unequal. Yes.
0: So, what, so we, wow. this is where this, um, maybe we, we probably should start it with meritocracy because there's so much here. Yeah. So, okay, so great. let's do that. So, there's, um, there's what we believe as human beings, that, right? So I think all of us have this inherent belief that if we could achieve a meritocracy, it would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. The problem is that people tend to believe the world is just. So there's um, a theory called Just World Theory that developed oh, wow. in the 1960s um, and talk about another depressing experiment that, Some of the groundbreaking work on this was done by um, bringing a a woman, generally a white attractive woman, young woman into a classroom Mm -hmm. and she would be asked to solve problems. And when she would not solve problems correctly, she would be shocked. I mean, the sorts of things they would do she would not actually be shocked but they would but participants would think that she was being shocked and so what the researchers thought was that there was going to be greater empathy expressed towards this this woman over time and that's not what they found what they found instead was that over time um, Wait, just, just, to, sorry, sorry. Yes, sure. She's shocked with a voltage
1: or yeah, like an expression. Like there's
0: no with a, like, There's a physical punishment enacted on her. A physical punishment, so it could wow. vary. Okay, so it, you know, and again, it was not actually done, but participants were made to wow. believe this was done. Wow. And what and what the researchers thought was that over time, what what happened is that people would be enormously moved toward empathy toward this woman who was being shocked. And that's not what happened. What happened instead is they would begin to believe that she deserved it. They would dehumanize. They would rationalize. And so we live in a world where people look around them and they say, not everyone has the same sets of resources, and they deserve what they have. And so if if organizations look like um, all you know, all sort of white men from privileged backgrounds are running them, that's because that's what's fair. That's because that's what meritocracy naturally has allowed instead Mm. of thinking, my gosh, what kind of society do we live in Um, where skill sets are equally dispersed, but Mm. opportunities are not, and there's something else going on. So so the myth of merit, which um, some work by Emilio Castilla and Mm Stefan Bernard and others have have showed is that um, the more people believe that their organization is a meritocracy, the less it tends to be. And what I mean by that is the more they are morally licensed to continue false beliefs about who ought to be running organizations based on all of the things that we can imagine.
1: So how do we, how do we even begin to address this in organizations and Leverage the world of DNI. Sure.
3: A- I'm going to come full circle and go back to relationships. Awesome. Some of what helps people move past a belief
0: in a just world theory mm. is being proximate to groups that are not like them. And being able to sit across from people, hear their stories, and say, oh my gosh, you are…
3: Amazing, and I now get how the world is how it is. Meaning, yeah,
0: that gosh, your opportunities weren't like mine, and I. What are we going to do about
1: that? Which reminds me of a of a beautiful story that actually happened uh, in I think Arizona or some some somewhere in, in the part of the country. I'm not exactly sure when, and I don't know when, what what time of of, of year, like you know, which decade. But there was a, a mayor or a senator or some, uh, some representative of the government who was absolutely anti-LGBTQ mm-hmm. and would, you know, really kind of enforce and publicly comment mm. on, you know, anti-LGBTQ um, legislation and all the things. Mm-hmm. And then his son came out mm-hmm. and he gets up on camera. And he starts sobbing. Hmm. And is, did it want to
3: just so re- remorseful yeah. for what
0: he, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, thank goodness for relationships. This, the, I think they are one of the best things we have going for us. It's um, only tangentially related, but what that story reminds me of is some research that was done among CEOs that looked at when CEOs gave birth to daughters or sons, what happened. Exactly. Right, so when we can be so proximate, and and my brother and I, my brother is um, a musician and quite a social advocate, and um, he, we both know people that have Adopted white families that have have adopted black children. I mean, it's the same thing over and over that we see you, it changes you when you are in relationship. Completely. And to the degree that we've not made as much progress as say what you hope for and what I hope for in terms of the world having more kindness and a greater level of belonging, it's because we're not proximate
1: enough. So how do we each other? How do we start to create that proximity in organizations? What do we do? I mean, this is bringing up ERGs for me, right? In a, in a, in mm-hmm. a, in a very interesting way, mm-hmm. um, because it's still, it's, it's it's a movement I think in the right direction, mm-hmm. in, in, to offer that relationality, mm-hmm. it also creates community and support groups and that sense of safety, right? The antithesis of loneliness, mm-hmm. right. But it's not enough. What it else? isn't enough. What else? What else can we do? Because <sighs> I got to get my stuff done. I have deliverables. I have, deliverables, I have OKRs. I'm working with people who are really transactional. They're not giving me the time of day. They're blocking me in some capacity. Sure. I'm getting frustrated. Sure. I have, you know, I got to talk. I got to report to my manager. I, I got to get this thing done. Adina, I, I don't have time for relationships. Yeah. I understand at the same
0: time. I, I mean, I, I have days I feel like that for sure. <laughs> We all do. We all do. <laughs> we all do.
1: <laughs> Given what I do for a living, we all do. <laughs> um,
3: we all do. I think what helps is to remember that at the end of the day, just about all we have are
0: relationships. I mean, That's I know it's a, it's a little bit of a cliche, but um, does the email really matter? beyond? I mean, it just... My dad was is still fond of saying. I mean, he was meaning it in a religious sense, but he felt like he he would say to me as a kid, "Adina, all we have are the end of the day relationships and people's souls." And what, oh, he I love that. he just would really, I mean, what else? The, I love everything that. else is gonna sort of go away, and those are the things that would he would say stand the test of time. And so, my gosh, I mean. You, so in an in an MBA world, yeah, so
1: when I yeah.
0: get this question from MBAs, what I'll say is that well, relationships can supercharge those things, and it's true, totally, it's true. But I also feel like that's overly strategic in ways that it can backfire. So then you become too exactly. careful and cognizant of the transactional aspects of relationships, right. and then are exactly. they really relationships if it depends on the transactions? Go. So it can backfire. That's why I say, focus oh, on being present. Mm-hmm. Try to increase the amount of your day when you're present. And, um, you know, my gosh, I'm really glad that days I do that better than others,
1: <laughs> I, For sure. you know. For sure. Yeah, like all of us. There's a Harvard Business Review article, I think from 2017 or 16, It's titled, um, Why Leadership Development Must Be Done on the Job or Needs to be Done on the Job. Mm -hmm. And I love this article because it says, uh, there's a direct quote out of the article, that um, the US workforce needs a minimum of 10 people every single day to do their job.
3: Meaning the rest of us are not.
1: Uh, Meaning that we need to be able to build powerful relationships to get our work done, mm. right?
0: Oh, I see. I see. I thought you meant um, the rest of us could just stop working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: gosh, this, this is where you went. Then this, this is, is yeah. This, this is, is where you
0: this, went with this. That. Is, everyone wants to read this article, right? <laughs> Along with the four day work week and everything else. Um, I see that we need to we need to have relationships with at least ten other people.
1: Yeah, in order to be productive and engaged and, and get our stuff I'm done. shocked
0: that it's that low. I can't imagine.
1: Well, it was at Only at 10, least. Yeah, but, was, uh,
0: but sure, sure.
1: You know, part of, we, we, we started this conversation talking about belonging mm-hmm. and about building community and, and being part of these networks and how essential and critical they mm-hmm. are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But from, a, from just a, a basic neurochemical standpoint, if we are not engaged with other people, our whole neurochemistry goes out the window in such a huge way mm-hmm. and so, what do you say to people who are terrified of relationships? What do you say to people who have experienced incredible trauma in their families, incredible
2: sure.
1: uh, you know generational trauma and mm-hmm. and you know I, I always tell founders, you know you 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 cannot hire a non-traumatized person Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. epigenetically. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Every single person on the planet has generational trauma. Depending on who you quote, what source you're citing, it's up to 490 years. Mm -hmm. Who knows how long, how much, you know, it really is. So we carry these traits, tragedies, and traumas in our cellular biology, according to Rachel Yehuda. And we have to be able to contend with these. Mm Tragedies and traumas Mm -hmm. in organizations while we're trying to build relationships with
2: each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, you don't
3: ask easy questions, Rajkumari. (laughs) This is not an an easy question.
0: While um, I'll take it as a compliment. So I I absolutely agree. You can't hire a non-traumatized human being. We've all experienced trauma um, and some
3: to a very serious degree. Um, Yes. I think depending on the point at which people are in their
0: lives, I mean, it could be too early for this. But I do think about
3: the importance of forgiveness. And the importance of thinking about people's capacities at the point at which they were the victims of these things
0: and what happened, yeah. right and and sort of their own ability like we're all
3: we're all just imperfect human beings yeah. and um. The ability to
0: have real conversations that say, oh my gosh,
3: you all all went to lunch and didn't invite me. Yeah. What happened? Right? Um the
0: the willingness to be able to do that, I think, is really um starts in in the in the step of trying to see something from another person's perspective. Um, which yes. is hard. Yes, I'll give you an example. Yes, it's an embarrassing one. But I I'm, gonna, I'm, the, I gonna, the I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going I'm gonna. you. I mean, it's, you're gonna hear this and be like, Dina, this is not that embarrassing. I'm told. My friends tell me every time I build something up, they're like, Oh my gosh, is that all that you've got for us? Anyway, I, as you can clearly see, um, a black woman, and I, in my Group at Stanford, I was until I joined Columbia, part of the macro organizational behavior group. There were no other black women. Oh, well. No other black faculty. I remember one time I had gone, so we, you know, um, a lot of days would go have lunch. And um, one day I was going to the cafeteria, Arbuckle, and I see all of my colleagues together. And I was Mm. like, oh my gosh, they didn't invite me. I go and I get my food. And then I had this moment of embarrassment. Like, do yeah. I go say hello? Do I not go say yeah. hello? Because then that's going to be awkward. And so I remember that I just scurried and got my lunch. And then I decided to eat it at my office. I hadn't, des- mm. I hadn't, I hadn't planned to do that, but that's what I did. And then later that day, I remembered that I had very clearly mentioned to all of them because we were supposed to have a meeting, that I was going to be out of town that day. And so Aww. all of the knocking on the doors that yeah. would tend to happen—I mean, that didn't happen. They—they would—they didn't know I was there. And so, what? How did I get from "Oh my gosh, what happened?" and "Don't I belong here?" to um, a realization was just this sort of puzzle, like this this doesn't make sense. Let me, if I if I assume good intent, and I you know, thought the world think the world of my colleagues.
3: Um, what is their perspective? Oh, <laughs> I think I'm out of town. That's why they didn't knock on my door.
0: It's a challenge. We are all imperfect, but the assumptions have to sort of be broken down sometimes.
1: What did you learn about yourself in that moment?
0: Besides that I jumped too quickly to a conclusion. But
2: cl- clearly, but yes. I think
0: I learned that I probably had um, some un, uh, sort of undiagnosed ways of thinking mm. about my relationships with others that mm-hmm. I thought I oh my gosh great relationships but maybe they're weaker than I thought or something like that and mm-hmm. so um, it can be moments of you know when people have whatever equivalent moment I know this one is not pertaining to everyone, but you can then say, well, how can I strengthen relationships? Because again, no one had done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And it was more a statement of, my gosh, Mm -hmm. let's let's continue to develop and strengthen them.
1: The the thing that keeps coming up for me in this, in the last 20, 25 minutes in this conversation is the phrase operationalize relationships. For me, this example kind of underscores and highlights how do I operationalize the relationship with myself? Mm. Mm -hmm. So that I can unpack all of the biases that I have for whatever reason and witness those biases play out in real time. Mm -hmm. Right? How Mm -hmm. do how do I start to Mm -hmm. to really start to learn me? Mhm. I think that so much of how we build healthy, thriving, flourishing organizations is all about relationships. As Stuart Crab, who's the former head of L&D over at Facebook and my former boss, you know, he sat in that chair and he said, "There are no there's no such thing as great companies, there are only great teams." Mhm. Mhm.
3: I understand his sentiment and It's so true. We have to, I mean, to go
0: back to belonging for a moment and this notion of bringing your whole self to work, which is not the way I tend to think about belonging, but you, but, but you do have to start with a relationship with yourself, understanding who you are, what you need, your own place and space in the world, what gives you joy. And to go back to, Something that you mentioned, if you're constantly in this mode of transaction and
2: let's mm-hmm. ram
0: as many things as we can into a day, that doesn't give time for self-reflection and without those moments of self-reflection, what do we have to offer in the context of relationships yeah um, we're going oh, with an so empty beautifully well said. so we're
1: so beautifully sad
0: um and by all means, there are points in time that in our all of our lives we where we don't necessarily have this luxury
1: as we close out this conversation, what is your hope for the future? And specifically, what would you like to see within organizations in terms of how we can g- begin to, whether it's operationalize relationships, whether it's mm. prioritize relationships, whether it's teach how to be in relationship with one another.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What what is the hope for you as we move into the next 10, 20, 30 mm. years? <laughs>
3: I mean, can I pick all of those things? Of
1: course. <laughs> yeah.
2: Things?
3: We want we need organizations to do all of those things. I mean uh, I really do believe that
0: technology can help us here if we if mm. we use technology the right way to um, give space for the sorts of things that human beings are really good at
3: mm-hmm.
0: and that machines are not, that algorithms are not. And so my hope would be that um, we would have... Neighborhoods and schools and religious institutions that allowed people to be proximate to each other so that once they got into organizations, this would be like second nature. That at a cognitive level, we are hardwired to categorize people in milliseconds. Correct. That at some point in the future, that would no longer happen. Yeah. That we would be better at. Um But psychologists and economists that win the Nobel Prize, like Danny Kahn- Kahneman <laughs> talk about, which is um, slow thinking and not fast thinking, right? right. That we're slow to eval- we're slow to evaluate yeah. others instead of quickly coming to judgments about them, that we um, reformulate the shareholder value proposition. So we didn't mm. get much into that, but we would reformulate what value creation means mm. and not just have it embedded in um, financial financial terms, but we would broaden
3: mm. it and take that seriously. Mm.
1: So a lot of hopes. It's beautiful. Thank you for coming all this way. I'm so, so grateful for you. It's mm. great to see you and spend time with you. I love our conversations.
0: I do too, Rajkumari.
1: Thank you for being here, Adina.
0: You're, you're, you're very welcome.
1: That was Rajkumari Niogi and Adina Sterling. Up next, what's the true meaning of the word woke? And how should organizations approach political and social issues? With Jenny Yang, SVP of people at 15.5. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, Production assistance by Tiari Boutet and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in.